Psalm 115 is a song, the song of Israel that they sang to find great courage and confidence in the midst of their life. I want to direct your attention really to the reading of the first eight verses and then our our time will be focused really on, only on the third verse of, those, of, of this psalm. The writer writes, not to us, O Lord, but to your name give glory. Because of your loving kindness, because of your truth. Why should the nation say, where now is their God? But our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of man's hands. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. They have noses, but they cannot smell. They have hands, but they cannot feel. They have feet, but they cannot walk. They have They cannot make a sound with their throat. Those who make them will become like them. Everyone who trusts in them. Make a couple of contextual notes. Uh, First of all, I want you to note the context in which this psalm comes. It's really in verse 2. Where the psalmist records the the attitude of the nation surrounding Israel with the question, why should the nation say, where now is their God? That's what the cultures around Israel were saying. Look at yourself. Look Look at who you are. Look at where you are. Look at what's going on. You boast in a God. But where is he today? This is not unlike a contemporary question that has been posed by the atheist who would say, if God is all-powerful and all-good, then he would be able to eliminate evil and would want to do such a thing. If you have a great God, where is he and what is he doing? And the rest of this psalm is really a response to that question. A second note that I want to make is regarding the emphasis of our consideration. And there are many great emphases that lie within this text. And there are many different things that could be brought out. In fact, Psalm 115 is really a statement about the sovereignty of God juxtaposed over against the idols of the nations. We've actually been using Psalm 115 in the past couple of Wednesday nights in our consideration of the Apostles' Creed to define what it means to be almighty. But this psalm enables us to see something beyond that. Not only does it explain his almightiness, he does whatever he pleases, but this psalm also shows us the engine that drives that sovereignty. And that engine is the pleasures of God. Notice the text. Notice what it says. But our God is in the heavens, and he does whatever he pleases. So what is God doing right now? He is doing the things 
that please him. Now, this is not the only psalm that came, contains this statement. In fact, Psalm 135, 6 says this, Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and in earth, in the seas, and in all the deeps. In both of these contexts, the freedom and power of God, the God of Israel, our God, is being contrasted with the idols of the nations. The point of contrast appears to be that of ability. The ability to speak and see and hear and smell and touch and move and act. Idols are lifeless creations by the hands of silly men that cannot act. But God is full of power and freedom to act. And he does act. And he acts in accordance to whatever he pleases. While the nation's idols are domesticated gods, our God, to borrow C.S. Lewis's imagery, he is no tame lion. He goes where he intends, and he does whatever he pleases. So the burning question at this particular point is, what pleases God? If that is the engine that is driving his sovereignty, then it behooves us to give consideration to the very pleasures of God because that then will tell us something about his activity among men. <coughs> Excuse me. John Piper, in his book, The Pleasures of God, refers to a book called uh, the, the Life of God in the Soul of Man. He notes that that book was influential not only in his life, but it was influential in the life of Charles Wesley, as well as in the life of George Whitfield. And it's influential because in that book, Scrugel writes this one sentence. He says, The worth and excellency of a soul is to be measured by the object of its delight. What he's saying is one of the ways we can truly know something about someone is by understanding their passions, what drives them. Why do they do what they do? Here is what Piper writes with respect to that one sentence. If this is true for man, that he might be known by his passions, may it not also be true for God? Is it not also the case that the worth and excellency of God's soul, his character, is to be measured by the object of his love? To know a soul's proportions, you need to know its passions. The true dimensions of a soul are seen in its delights. What we passionately want reveals our excellence or our evil. And then he pins this short poem. He says, The soul is measured by its flights, some low, some high. The heart is known by its delights, and pleasures never lie. So how important is it to know what God takes pleasure in? Well, we have not begun to imagine how important that is. 
For if God takes pleasure in evil, then a terror beyond our capacity should grip our soul. But if God takes pleasure in excellency, then the light of joy will begin to pulse through our hearts and fill us with hope beyond expression. Let me illustrate this. If you were to take the second half of this parallel line of Hebrew poetry, he does whatever he pleases, you would certainly have just cause for an emotional response. But what response should that be? Well, that response is tied to the nature of the one who is doing whatever he pleases. So let's think about this. If you see a three-year-old and the statement is made, well, now that three-year-old is doing whatever he pleases. What kind of response should that bring? Well, it's probably related to whether or not that three-year-old belongs to you. If that three-year-old belongs to you, there's probably going to be a little bit of anger that takes place. If he doesn't belong to you, it's probably going to bring about a little bit of humor. So you see, so if it's attributed to a three-year-old, you can have a wide range of responses. But what if tonight you turn on the news and you see a report about a convicted murder and rapist who's on the loose in your neighborhood and who is doing whatever he pleases, then certainly a measure of terror would grip your heart. The point of this is to demonstrate the reaction to such a statement, he does whatever he pleases, is in direct response to the nature of the pleasures that is being described by the statement. So what then are the pleasures of God and should we be full of terror? Our hearts full of joy. Well, some might say, well, can, that, can you even know such a thing? Honestly, can you, can you even remotely have any concept of what pleases God? You know how I'm going to answer that, don't you? If I don't, have, if I don't answer it yes, then the sermon's over. I am going to answer yes. Because those pleasures are actually contained within his word. He has told us what he is pleased with. Not only that, he's also told us that he is pleased that we know such things. Let me show you a couple of places. In Jeremiah chapter 9 and verse 24, here's what the prophet writes on behalf of God. But let him who boasts boast of this that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, for I delight in these things. What does God delight in? He delights in loving kindness and justice and righteousness, and he wants us to know that. Why? Because that changes our perspective on him. The prophet Hosea, in chapter 6, in verses 3 and 6, here's what the Lord impresses the prophet to write. 
So let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. And then in verse 6 he says, For I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice, and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. God is delighted for us to know him, to know his pleasures, so that our perspective on him will be changed. So these verses not only encourage us to press on to know the Lord, but they encourage us by the fact that he's telling us that God, right now, right now, if I'm understanding all of this right, God right now is feeling pleasure well up within himself because we are on the verge of, through his word, understanding something about his pleasures. So at this point, we're going to do three things. One, we're going to do a brief survey of the things that God takes pleasure in. Secondly, we're going to consider the passion of God for his pleasures. And then, thirdly, we're going to return to Psalm 15, 115 for an application. So what are the things that God takes pleasure in? And there are, are, they are recorded all over the word of God. They are recorded at times in direct statements. At times they are recorded through indirect statements. At times they are recorded through contrasting statements. So let's just take a look at a few of these. If you can't follow along with me in your Bible, just I'll give you the notes. I'll tell you where they are. But more importantly, I want you to hear what God is saying through his word about himself and his pleasures. So Isaiah 65, 17. Listen, this is a statement about the age to come. Here's what he says. He says, for behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. And the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem for rejoicing and her peoples for gladness. Why is heaven, why is the new Jerusalem and the new earth created? It is for the purpose of pleasure, for the purpose of rejoicing. Now the question is, who's rejoicing? Now typically we answer that question with our rejoicing, for our pleasure, and that is not incorrect. But if you hang with the text one more verse, you'll find out that it's for God's pleasure. Because here's what Isaiah 6519 says, listen, this is God speaking. I will also rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. That's an amazing statement. God says, I'm creating heaven for myself and for my people, and we are going to rejoice together in that place I over you and you over me. It's a union of pleasure. In that same text, it says, And there will no longer be heard in her the voice of weeping and the sound of crying. Do you know why? Because we will be overwhelmed with the pleasure of God. It is the pleasure of God. And our union with that pleasure 
that will dry up every tear that we have ever shed. 1 Samuel 15.22, Samuel says, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as obeying the voice of the Lord? The Lord takes pleasure in obedience. Regardless of how difficult it is. In fact, even in the difficulty, how do we, how do we sustain difficult obedience? It's by remembering that God is pleased with our obedience. He's rooting us on in our obedience. He's calling the attention of heaven. Would you look at what they are doing? They are being obedient to my word. God rejoices in obedience. Now here's a, here's a, a one of contrast. Psalm 5.4. For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. No evil dwells with you. Now there's a collective. Right? Because what would happen if God took delight in evil or in wickedness? Hell hath no description then of what comes upon us. But he says he has no pleasure in wickedness. Well, if he has no pleasure in wickedness, what, is the, what does he have pleasure in? What is the opposite of wickedness, which is in righteousness? Psalm 147.10. He does not delight in the strength of the horse. The Lord favors or takes pleasure in those who fear him. Ecclesiastes 5.4. When you make a vow to God, do not be late in paying it, for he takes no delight in fools. Don't be a fool. What does he delight in? He doesn't delight in fools. He delights in wisdom. Wisdom in this point of doing what you're supposed to be doing, doing what you said you were going to do. Now this next text is Isaiah 53.10, and what it's going to reveal is that the pleasures of God, at times, while they are simple, at times, they are complex. Isaiah 53.10 is one of those texts that demonstrate that the pleasure of God, at times, is very complex. Listen to what he says. This is the gospel. But the Lord was pleased to crush him. Putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and listen, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. We've got to think about this for just a minute. Is God pleased with the pain that was that Jesus felt when he was on the cross. That's what he's talking about. He says, when he says, but the Lord was pleased to crush him. No, it wasn't the pain that he was pleased with. It wasn't the writhing agony that Christ felt on our behalf that brought pleasure to God. What brought pleasure to God was the outcome of that pain. And the outcome of that pain was our redemption. And so God, looking at a 
a pleasure beyond the pain saw in the work of his son an outcome that would bring him great delight. And great delight not only in the outcome, but in the outcome, but in the one who brought the outcome. It's very complex. It's very instructive. It's very instructive because we will see that there are times in our life when it doesn't look like God is pleased with us. But God's pleasure lies beyond the pain. God's pleasures at times are simple. God's pleasures at times are very complex. Not only does his pleasure reside in his son, but it resides in us. There's many texts that we could look at. I'll just look at one more. Philippians 2.13. I want you to listen. Listen to this. Paul writes and he says to the Philippians, For it is God who is at work in you. Now you know how the rest of it goes, don't you? Both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God is at work in our life. That's the clear teaching of the word of God. And he's at work in our life for, the purpose, for his own pleasure. He is excited about what he's doing in you. It brings him joy to see the circumstances that are going to produce the outcome that he is after. C.S. Lewis in an address called The Weight of Glory, picks up on this. And here's what he says. He says, to please God. And that's what Philippians 2.13 is, is saying. He's at work in us for his good pleasure. Okay? He says, to please God, to be a real ingredient in the divine happiness, to be loved by God, not merely pitied, but delighted in as an artist delights in his work, or a father in his son, it seems impossible. A weight or burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain, but it is so. God is delighted to work in us and to work through us. As an artist who paints the painting and is delighted in the outcome. As a builder builds the building. As the architect designs it. As the physician brings healing. You get involved in your craft. You, you are consumed by it. Your pleasure's in it. This is the work of God in us. And he is overwhelmed with delight to do it. It's an amazing thought. So we can see that, that the word of God contains clear, clear statements about what God takes pleasure in. At times, simple things. At times, things that are a little complex. But they are certain. And because he is who he is, 
they will come about. He will realize his pleasures. Now, the second thing that I want to do at this point <clears throat> is I want to talk about what is the level of passion within the pleasures of God. How, how passionate is God about his pleasures? Are these just passing fancies? Just, oh, what will I do today? Or are they deep-rooted, foundational level desires that produce a relentless effort to see them come about? Well, I submit to you, it's the latter. Look back at Psalm 115 and verse 3. I want to direct your attention to, to the word that we find there. Psalm 115, 3, it says, But our God is in the heavens, and he does whatever he pleases. That word there, whatever he pleases, is deep. It, it, it has a basic meaning of feeling great favor towards something. But it goes beyond that. It goes to the root level of a joyful attitude that expresses itself in conduct. And, a, and, and one dictionary says it is to express emotional delight. So not only does God have pleasure in these things, but he expresses that pleasure. It is so overwhelming. That pleasure is so driving that it that it, that it comes out of God in expressible ways. Now, let me give you a clear example of that. All right? In Zephaniah chapter 3 and verse 17, listen to what <clears throat> the prophet writes. He's writing to the congregation, and he says, The Lord your God is in your midst. A victorious warrior... He will exalt over you with joy. He will be quiet in his love. He will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. Now that's a, what we call a Hebrew idiom. It's a, it's a figure of speech. If you look it up, what it means is that God sings. What this text is telling us is that God, in, in Zephaniah 3.17, is so filled with pleasure in his people that he breaks out in song over them. Now, have you ever wondered what the sound of God singing is like? Well, John Piper, in his book, The Pleasures of God, ventures his imagination into that realm. And here, here's, here's what he says. He says, what do you hear when you imagine the voice of God singing? I hear the booming of Niagara Falls mingled with the trickle of a mossy mountain stream. I hear the blast of Mount St. Helens mingled with a kitten's purr. I hear the power of an East Coast hurricane and the barely audible puff of a night snow in the woods. I hear the unimaginable roar of the sun. 
but I hear this unimaginable roar mingled with the tender, warm crackling of logs in the living room on a cozy winter's night. It's an amazing thing to consider, to contemplate, that God sings. He sings because he's pleased. It's a song of pleasure. It is, his pleasure is so passionate that it cannot stay contained, but rather it breaks out in emotional response in the form of singing. God is passionate about his pleasures. Lastly, I want to return to this psalm for application. So what does this mean for us? What, what, is, what does it mean? What, what, how is this supposed to impact us? We don't have to wonder or worry. The psalmist clearly gives us the application. It's found in verses 9 through 11 and then in verse 18. And it boils down to this. Trust and praise. That's what this is supposed to do to us. The knowledge of the pleasure of God in us is supposed to strengthen our faith to the point where we bring him praise for who he is. So let's consider trust. Psalm 115.9 Oh, Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. Do you see that? The repetition. You know what the repetition means, don't you? The repetition is there for emphasis. And what is the point being emphasized? Trusting in the Lord. Trusting what about the Lord? Trusting the fact that God takes pleasure in saving his people. His salvation is the expression of his pleasure in them. He delights in such a thing for it demonstrates his glory and is the source of that glory being proclaimed, being praised by his people among the nations. Nations where people now afflicted need to know about God's pleasure to save afflicted people. You see, our present afflictions are but the opportunity for the pleasure of God to be expressed toward us by saving us and causing us to rejoice in that pleasure. Our present affliction is not for our destruction but simply the prelude to God's salvation, which is his pleasure known in our life. This idea is caught by William Cooper in his hymn, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. Listen to what he wrote. William Cooper is a man who suffered depression his entire life. And had it not been... Had it not been for John Newton, would have taken his life. But out of that deep, deep suffering that he had, he writes this hymn. He says, 
God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. God is at work. Even, even when circumstances bring about a frowning providence, in Cooper's words, behind that, behind that is a smiling face. Oh, don't let that be offensive to you. Don't be caught off guard. Don't think, well, I want God to feel my pain. No, that's not the point. We want to feel God's pleasure. That is the point. And his pleasure is certain. And ours is too, because the two are united in one. God is at work in your life. Because he's pleased to. And that frowning providence hides a smiling face. The question is, do we believe that God takes pleasure in saving us? That's the question. Do you fundamentally, at the core of your being, believe that God Almighty in heaven is pleased to work in your life for his good pleasure. If you say no to that, then you're calling the scripture a lie and you have no hope. Our hope lies in the truthfulness of the word of God that is telling us that regardless of how dismal it looks, God's not worried. He's not panicked. Oh, he, he is working out his pleasures. Do you believe? That's what the psalmist is writing this psalm for. He's writing this psalm to tell you about the pleasures of God so that you will believe in him. But not just believe in him, but to praise him. Notice verse 18 of the psalm. After all has been said in this psalm, here's, here's his conclusion. But as for us, as contrasted to the world, he says, where is your God? But as for us, we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forever. Praise the Lord. If we understand this psalm correctly, 
This is the natural outworking of what it is teaching us. The truth that God takes pleasure in his people is no abstract truth that is intended to be pondered in academic or theological halls, but rather it is the basis of full-bodied, heart-filling, sincere, music-playing, song-singing praise. This truth is a call to take pleasure in the pleasure of God and express that pleasure toward God. The knowledge that God takes pleasure in his people is to cause his people to reflect back that pleasure through singing. Singing new songs and singing those songs in the congregation. Those songs would probably include lyrics that would describe the ways in which God has expressed his pleasure for his people, which includes their salvation. And those songs are to be sung like you are trying to shine. The knowledge of God's pleasure is expected to be so immense that it moves us bodily and gives skill and diligence to playing instruments for his praise. Now let me make a note about hypocrisy. This psalm is not a call to hypocrisy. If you do not feel the pleasure of God, then you really do not understand the pleasure that God has towards you. And it would be a lie for you to try to mimic that. So the question is, well, then what do I do? What if I don't feel like praising God? Well, you need to think about it. You need to use the reasoning that we employed earlier. If God does everything he pleases, then everything that he does, he is pleased to do it. If he blesses us, it is because he is pleased to do it. And when he does it, the blessing does not come from external compulsion, nor does he do it begrudgingly. But with radiant pleasure. And that certainly is the ground for wholehearted, soul-enveloping, life-giving praise. God is in the heavens. And he's doing whatever he pleases. And his pleasures are rooted and grounded in himself in his willingness and his desire to save his people so that they will know his pleasures and then reflect that trust through praise, not only in the congregation, but to the world around us, that they might see and know the pleasures of our God. Now, in a moment, Seth is going to come and we're going to have an an invitation. What is that invitation? An invitation is, it is, what we are saying to you today is this, that God in Christ Jesus was present 